and welcome to Suds, the weekly podcast of the chocolate Easter eggs in every Startup Daily TV show, which you can catch on AusBiz 2pm every weekday. I'm Simon Thompson, editor of Startup Daily, and right beside me is the next best thing to hot cross buns. It's Elliot Hasty and Simon, I actually don't think anything can top hot cross buns. It is the best part of the season probably just behind the four-day weekend that we do get. Yes, but what I love about you, Elliot, is you're warm, you're spicy, and you're fruity. So I kind of get to enjoy you all year round. I'm going to put that on my LinkedIn resume. I think that sounds quite good, actually. (laughs) Well, speaking of LinkedIn resumes, do you think that the Twitter CEO is checking out Elon Musk this week in trying to decide whether he should be on the board? Look, I think they certainly had an idea about whether or not he should have been on the board, as many board members might have tweeted out as well. But then, as we know, Simon, these things have a way of working themselves out, don't they? It's one of those moments where, you know, you keep jumping up and down and putting your hand up and wanting to be picked on the team, and the minute sort of everyone says, OK, come and play with us, they go, no, I don't want to. Yeah, it's very that. It's like a child at a playground, and, you know, childish is... Sort of how I would describe Elon a lot of the time, to be honest. Well, I actually consider him the founder of what I'm calling the attention seeker economy. He has basically pioneered the sector and just soaks up basically most of the attention. And, of course, that was the case this week with the 9.2% stake in Twitter. Then, of course, his subsequent tweets. And then everyone was welcoming, as you said. Next thing you know, he's going, nah, I'm out. But what fascinated me and Casey Newton from Platform pointed this out, was that note in uh, that uh, the CEO, Parag Agrawal, posted where he said, we announced on Tuesday that Elon would be appointed to the board contingent on a background check and formal acceptance. Can you imagine background checking Musk? Smoking weed on Joe Rogan's podcast, mocking the use of alternative pronouns, secret baby with Grimes, and of course, let's not forget said secret baby and name of. Uh, Look, Background check would be interesting. Yeah, and then, of course, there is that racial discrimination lawsuit believed to be the biggest one ever brought in California. An interesting character, interesting background. But as Casey pointed out, what are we going to find out that he knocked over 7-Eleven at some stage <laughs> in his career? If anything, a background check could have pointed out his business acumen. Well, yes, interestingly, (laughs) um, allegedly, I would sort of say, because some Twitter shareholders might have something to say about that, because they've launched a class action in Manhattan Federal Court this week uh, around selling and buying and selling uh, Twitter stock in the period between March 24 and April 1 inclusive, by which stage Musk should have technically, given he became a substantial shareholder in the business on March 14, and America has similar rules to ours when it comes to becoming a substantial shareholder and disclosure, he didn't do that, and he kept buying stock in the company even after he already hit that 5% and threshold. of course, he was able to keep prices low, which is the issue then because, as we all saw, when he did purchase that 9.2%... Well, when it, it came out loud. When it came out, it the share price skyrocketed. And, of course, it's not the first time that Musk has used Twitter, although admittedly with his tweets, to jack up share prices or or destroy them as the SEC is want to piss off for it. Or or pump up the tyres on uh, cryptocurrencies along the way. 
The fascinating thing for me in all of this, of course, is that I think that whole discussion around Twitter started with him still being slightly annoyed with the SEC, having a go at him last time around over his should I take Tesla private tweets, and, of course, he got busted and wrapped over the knuckles for that. Uh, And here we are sort of now in a new fight with the SEC, which will be quite interesting. It it clearly wasn't enough of a wrap over the knuckles, though, because he keeps doing the same behaviour. Like, they need to de-platform him fully or actually make a dent into his net wealth. I don't think he'd be the first recidivist to uh, keep committing similar Mm. behaviours. But, of course, how do you make a dent in that level of wealth when you're the world's richest man? And there were some interesting things about how that wealth creation came, or not how it came, but, of course, a correlation that we were seeing, or coincidence, let's say coincidence, that we saw. uh, And this is a story in the LA Times that caught my eye this week where a couple of university researchers have been looking at bots on Twitter. There's more than 180 of them that they've been tracking who are basically tweeting about Tesla and how fantastic it is. And it starts out with a story around November 2013 when the news wasn't looking great. Of course, the Model S cars were catching on fire. Their share price was tumbling. On November 7 of that year, within the span of 75 minutes, eight automated Twitter accounts came to life and began publishing positive Twitter comments, uh, Tesla comments. Over the next seven years, more than 30,000 tweets of that kind have emerged, basically pumping up the tyres on a Tesla. So you're saying all I need to do is just buy and pay for a bunch of bots, not that there's any suggestion that Elon is behind said bots, but if I just want to increase a bit of my popularity, I just need to pay some bots to just do it for me. Well, I thought you were incredibly popular already, Elliot, but this has been fascinating in terms of the analysis, and I do urge you to go and have a look for this story on the LA Times because, of course, they've been reviewing these tweets over the last couple of years all the way to 2020. Over that period, Tesla has lost $5.7 billion, but of course, its stock has gone in the opposite direction, making him the richest man in the world with an estimated $275 billion US wealth, which is kind of what? About half a billion, half a trillion dollars. It's just insane. There were some obviously wrong tweets about how much his stake in Twitter could have actually helped Americans, uh, you know, live. But there is a good point behind it all. He's just purchasing this $2 billion just because he wants to make some changes to Twitter, Let you know, we assume. But he could do so much to actually benefit the world if he so chose. Well, he does or he doesn't because nowadays he's sort of gone off to the side again. And the interesting thing is the door is now open because, let's be honest, the board was hoping to have him on the inside of the tent pissing out. He's now sort of going to keep playing this stalking horse game with them. Uh, The 15% cap that he would have otherwise had as a board member is now gone. Will he make a full-time bid? Really? Why would you want that business? Because they've not even figured out how to make money from it. I don't know if he needs another loss-making business at this point. Look, Simon, anyone that's a muscolite, as we are now calling them, they say they are, they're a giant red flag to me. And in fact, you had quite a conversation about red flags from a VC angle this week. Absolutely. Phil Moyle from Main Sequence Ventures, the deep tech investment company, which sits off to the side of the CSIRO. Uh, Phil is a prolific writer. He writes a great daily blog, putting out his thoughts in the space. We're now having him on the show and on startupdaily.net as a regular, sharing his insights. This week, we looked at four red flags for venture capitalists when they look at pitches from deep tech startups. The thing about this is many of them apply to all startups, not just deep tech ones. And so we talked about those flags. Not going to go through all of them, 
But what we did discuss is telling a story is one of the really crucial things when you pitch to a VC. This can be more pronounced with a VC first meeting, which might take months to actually bring together. And then you may have 30 to 60 minutes to actually get your case across. And people spend so much of that time trying to explain the problem, but they don't get to the solution, or they're using words that only some people understand and they assume everybody else understands them. And the whole thing just feels too theoretical in general. So it's, it's you know, we like people to cut to the chase, be really, really clear about what it is, even if they feel like it makes it sound too simplistic, and then build up from there about all the wonderful things that the business is going to do. But just make sure you don't bury the lead in journalistic terms and make sure we understand what we're looking at. I think that's absolutely correct. And as you go on to discuss with him, you know, it is all about making it accessible. Like the reason why you're investing in them is because they're creating a solution to a problem that you cannot. So yeah, dumb it down for what better of a term to a level that, you can understand it and then therefore want to put your money in it. Phil makes the point that he's never felt patronised during a pitch, but in the end, as a storyteller, which is what founders are, and of course Tesla has been a genius on the storytelling front, I have to say. This is part of the success of that business, the mythology it's built around itself. But the interesting thing on this front is... When you tell a great story, it means your parents understand what you do for a living, your friends get it as well. More importantly, the people who will invest in you and your customers and the team in your startup will also have a really clear idea of where they're heading and why they're doing it. So there is a a pitch pattern that, that is very common out there at the moment where people talk about the problem, they talk about the solution, they talk about the business model. Uh, and we've got very good at doing that. And people are coming straight out of accelerator programs, for example, without even a product yet. And it still feels like a rich story in the pitch deck. But if you can show how it works, if you can demonstrate, that is incredibly powerful. So after you've walked through the business, as soon as you can get to showing us how amazing it is, show us what you've done, show us what you've achieved, help us to imagine the actuality of how this thing is going to make the world a little bit better. And that is so powerful. You know, that that pitch pattern that he does talk about, um, he's absolutely right. You know, there is a power to it and doing it well versus doing it bad can really pay dividends. Uh, Absolutely. And, of course, the other thing that you have to do along the way, and we know all about it here at Startup Daily and AusBiz, is hustling, Elliot, million miles an hour all the time to deliver value for everyone. He talked about how important it was for startup founders to demonstrate hustle in what they're doing and explained why. The, The art of venture capital is to get as much as you can done within a certain period of time and that's the period of time that you've just been funded and by the time you finish that period you want to have driven up the valuation so that the next round is going to give an uplift and this is the game that you're going to be playing for the next 10 years and so a, a company that doesn't display this urgency doesn't show that it understands how important timing is Um, is always going to feel weaker. Now, there's there's a couple of parts to that. One is just how urgently are are you behaving? How urgent do you feel it is and are you communicating that? 
But the other thing is, are you just taking for granted that the investor understands what you've got done in how much time? So it's very, very important to say, look, here's where we started and here's what we aim to get done and look at what we did. If it's a graph or however you're showing what you've got done, frame it in time and show that you believe in urgency and you can get things done according to plan. Now, we're no strangers to the hustle either on Startup Daily ourselves, of course, getting everything from a website onto a radio show, onto TV show. But we also had some guests this week that have created a very new platform to solve a particular kind of hustle that they're calling Hype Commerce, Simon. Yeah, I hadn't even known about Hype Commerce up until now, but Andrew Lynn from Equal joined us. They've just raised $25 million for this platform. Started out with sneakers, and I kind of get that because there is this mad thing. We've talked to other startup founders who, of course, have built e-commerce businesses around sneakers and their investment value and everything that's going on here. Well, there's this problem, of course, of everyone rushing for the hottest item in town all at the same time. Websites crash. Of course, the bots and spammers get in there and trash it as well or steal the product before, you know, every day people can get a hold of it. We all know that feeling when we try and buy tickets to a concert that we really want to go and see. Well, Equal is dealing with those problems. So Andrew joined us on the show to explain not only the hype commerce idea but who it's working for. And it's a really interesting just how the idea is broadened out for them. I see hype commerce is, is, or hype being a mega trend and it's not limited to sneakers anymore. Sneakers were really a proxy for us to test the concept out in. Um, so, you know, hype, hype combined with uh, e-commerce as a freight train and then the products we sell are luxury goods and, and consumers out there aren't sensitive to luxury good pricing. Um, so we realised we were on this kind of hype commerce wave um, started with sneakers, now we sell apparel, uh, streetwear, uh, limited run or heritage brand like Sullivan's Cove Whiskey, uh, Crocs. Um, you know, we sell all types of products because what we've realised is hype lives in um, fascinating parts of the world in all corners of the globe across all industries and products. And if you look at even um, digital collectibles, luxury goods, wristwatches, handbags, um, you know, there's there's cohorts of folks that are very passionate about these products and a lot of people out there will do some fairly creative things to get their hands on them. Because, of course, this all started. I remember Apple back in the day, people would line up around the corner. Now there's almost none of that. But even on my walks, on my walks to work, Simon, and, you know, this is a humble brag, at 5.30 in the morning when I pass the Nike store on my way to the gym, there are people lining up. There are people with swags, there are people with deck chairs, and they are getting that new sneaker before anyone else can beat them to it. So they can wear it at the gym next to you. They are absolutely never wearing those sneakers and they'd be ashamed of my, like, nice little Under Armour shoes that have paint marks on them because I was painting my house the other day, you know? <laughs> As I said, my Dunlop volleys. Although I love the fact that Crocs is one of the brands that is kind of hot and hyped in Andrew's is that real, though? Like, who's asking for Crocs? I, well, I'm not enough of a Croc expert or, uh, to be able to sort of discuss this, Elliot. I will go and work Please on that. Please just never wear Come them in the office, you. Simon. Uh, all right, I promise not to. But uh, he also, speaking of hustle, which is what we talked about with Phil, talked about the hustle uh, when it came to Nike because what an amazing thing to do. You send a cold canvas email via LinkedIn or message via LinkedIn to the brand sort of saying, hey, we've got this idea and we think we can solve a problem. Here's what it happened next. 
But our ambition is to build the world's fairest hype commerce platform out there and get our products into the hands of real fans. Um, As I said, we were disgruntled fans um, at the time trying to get our hands on sneakers through retail stores. And um, my background's in marketing and brand. I know how to put together a pretty deck and we had a nice idea. So um, we put together the idea of hype infrastructure as a service. Um, and we thought if we reach out to Nike, maybe we can have a chance to, to, to sell them in on the idea. Um, a cold email from my co-founder James to their team in EMEA out of, out of Europe um, resulted in them actually being very open to hear um, how we could potentially help out their retail partners. So um, we all jumped on a call, uh, pitched the idea of equal and hype commerce as an infrastructure play. Um, meeting was was great and they were just so kind of lovely and focused on helping their fans out there. Um, six weeks later, we get a call back saying, hey, that, that um, hype infrastructure product you've got, um, there's a, a retailer in France that is launching a limited release Jordan and they'd like to use your product. Um, in in, in, uh, in traditional kind of startup style, we had no product, just a pretty looking deck. So um, we, together with our CTO, Patrick, sprinted on building what was equal 1.0. Um, and it, we were able to, to get that launch up. It was in French. Neither of us uh, speak French. But um, we were able to get the product up and sell what was a very high demand Jordan sneaker for this French retailer in Paris. And what we realized was it worked. The hype infrastructure scaled. Bots and scammers were deflected, and we were able to facilitate um, transactions for the retail that were very accurate, that in oversell, that in undersell. And that was the start of our, I guess, our origin story. Um, since then, we've done over a thousand launches across 11 markets in six languages. As you said, we sell a whole bunch of different products, working with the likes of, you know, your Footlockers and your Crocs and our Culture Kings, Sullivan's Cove. So um, Nike were amazing in kind of giving us that little injection of energy to show that there's a market out there for it. And that was our, our stepping stone into building out this product. Now, Simon, someone that joined us as well that is no stranger to the hustle was, of course, Tim Fong, who has reached 10 years of building out Airtasker. Um, incredible, incredible 10 years. He's listed, he's bought it from a startup into a listed vehicle. It's just amazing what he's been able to do. Well, amongst the many amazing things he's done is shared his 10 insights into things he's learned over the decade. I thought that was a fantastic piece that he's done on startupdaily.net about how to be a leader of a startup and now, of course, an ASX-listed company. And the conversation you had with him was great. And we also did what we always do with a Tim interview. He accidentally hit the mute button. Tim, I think I've just got to teach you, just don't hit it. The producers here at AusBiz, they've been trained by me, so I know they do a very good job. Uh, They will make sure you do not go live when you don't want to. However, we did just, and, you know, maybe that's a vulnerability, which we did discuss um, with Tim, who called it a little bit of a superpower. Vulnerability really is a bit of a secret power. Um, And what I mean by that is often, you know, we, we stress ourselves out and we get really anxious about, um, you know, about a decision that needs to be made, something that's really difficult in the business or something you don't really want to talk about um, with others. And actually, one of the, um, the best things you can do is just to come clean with people uh, on that, um, you know, whether that's, you know, we're not growing fast enough or we're going to run out of money or, you know, all these really difficult things. Or I need to let somebody go uh, who I love in the company or something like that. Um, one of the things you can really do to, to take that load off yourself is, 
to be vulnerable about it. Tell people about how you're feeling. Um, and usually that actually diffuses a lot of the conflict and, and really helps um, make good team decisions. So isn't that interesting about making good team decisions by being vulnerable? I love his thinking. I love the insights he offered. I kind of want to go through all 10 of them on this podcast, but we would be here for an extra 20 minutes. So I did pick out from your great chat with him, Elliot, a couple of the key ones that I think are really important. And of course, another one of those is setting boundaries, because of course, we've all been guilty of checking our emails for work at 11 o'clock at night, checking the Slack channel. And of course, sometimes people do expect, not here I would add, but sort of sometimes people do expect you to answer messages for your startup in the middle of the night. Well, Here's a man who's built an ASX-listed company who takes a very different view and has some very firm views around how you should be setting boundaries. I think one of the things that I've always found to be really important is setting boundaries uh, for yourself. And so um, even before the the COVID pandemic, I would always, you know, um, make sure that I had an office, um, that I had time to do exercise and then, you know, head into the office um, and, and be able to set those boundaries. I think that's become even more important during the world of Slack and COVID and Zoom and, and, and Google Hangouts. Um, so we, we've got um, our norms at, at Airtasker, which is, you know, make sure that you turn off your notifications at a certain time. If you need to take those times out for, for lunch or for breaks uh, with your family, um, make sure that you're, you're doing that too. So I think it's all about being disciplined and setting those boundaries for yourself so that you can build that work-life balance. Honestly, I love what he said. You know, you you do have to set the, the boundaries. It is important for work-life balance. And the thing is, if you get work-life balance right, they're going to bring their better selves to work. You get more out of them than if you just fog them. Well, we talk about sustainability all the time, having sustainability in your workforce and your ability to be able to work and not burn out, I think is a really important part of that. Um, were there any other key messages that you really loved out of this? Because he talks about sleeping being an important action and not being lazy. He talks about being thankful. He talks about giving himself the morning. He avoids checking his emails as soon as he gets up because he finds it overwhelming and it basically tarnishes his mood for the day. Although as as I did discuss with him, you know, I do check my phone as soon as I wake up. I watch about like maybe two minutes off of TikToks while I'm tying on my <laughs> shoes. Um, and it actually puts me in a really good mood. But I think one of the things I was most impressed with about what Tim was saying is that it's so easy and you hear it all the time in offices when someone does something wrong or they've slacked off or they're not quite doing their job right. It's very quick to criticise and you might even remember it from, you know, school or uni or at home. But what there isn't often a lot of is catching people out being like, actually, you went above and beyond. You did a really good work. And as Tim said, it's just a really easy way to build a great culture. It's really easy, um, especially as a, um, you know, as a CEO or a manager of people to see good things happening and just to be like, oh, yeah, cool. That good thing happened. That was great work. And, and just to sort of glaze over that. Um, but then when you see something isn't going well, you know, really calling it out. And I think the opposite, the complete opposite uh, is the is the best way to go, which is try to find those moments when people are doing great work or, or doing something that really benefits the company and benefits the mission uh, of the company. Find those times, really be uh, present and, and look for those moments. Because when you can catch someone doing the right thing and say, hey, I saw you do that amazing thing, um, that really is, first of all, very meaningful um, to, to team members. Um, but it also starts to um, set the right tone for, uh, for what your expectations are 
uh, into the future. And that's uh, really, I think, how you, you build a, a great uh, work culture. Yeah, total mind flip. I mean, we talk about carrot and stick, him reminding us that the carrots are the way to go and just celebrating good is a wonderful tone to set in your business rather than sort of a long list of don'ts, you know, along the way. Now, Simon, you had another catch up with one of our other wonderful regulars in Ben Chong. I think firstly, I'm very jealous that he is over in America at the moment. He's meeting people in real life, internationally, uh, and he's learned a few lessons from it. Are you also jealous that he's spending two days in board meetings in America? Because that's what he's doing. He's gone off to meet the founders of the companies that Right Click Capital has invested in. But I love this because the piece he did for us and then talked about on the show is about what he's been learning along the way. And he went to this board meeting for this company. There are 17 people around the table. So you can imagine after a couple of years where they haven't been in the room together, there's a lot to talk about. And the facilitator of this meeting started talking about something called IDS. And I originally read it as IDS, thinking, yep, plenty of ego, so probably some IDS as well. But it stands for Identify, Discuss and solve. And he talked about this in our conversation, as well as setting out how it all works on startupdaily.net. But what I really loved was how he talked about chairing a meeting and thinking about what you do. And again, this is about being a leader and how you bring everyone else on board. So some really good points here, I think, for anyone as they start to put their company together and set the leadership tone. A good chair will ask for all of the board members to list what are the issues they have. And there's often a pre-board meeting where these issues get raised in a list of agenda items. But I think what I learned was being privy and being being persistent in asking, is that the real issue? Is the performance measure the real issue? Or is it the fact that you're not getting the data? the performance issue. And it's one of those things. We see an issue as the tip of the iceberg, but a good facilitator or a good chair will ask the question, huh, what is the real driver of the issue? And the fact is that when we had this two-hour meeting, (laughs) the two-hour meeting to discuss these issues, of course, there were other items that we discussed over the the, the course of the two days that we met, we we realised, huh, a number of the sub-issues or the issues that I raised or other people raised were in fact related to the main issue. And because there was this process where the facilitator asked, huh, tell me more, please dig deeper, we were able to identify a number of these core issues which we then proceeded to have a more in-depth discussion about. Well, there you go, founders. Some great ideas from Ben Chong at Right Click Capital. Simon, I does think this brings us to our Easter break. Absolutely, and hot cross buns for you, Elliot, for all the good things you've been doing. Thank you for another great week of shows. We will, of course, be taking Monday off, but we will be back Tuesday at 2pm. It'll be Ray's Day, of course. There'll be plenty of announcements on that front. But in the meantime... Have a great, safe and happy Easter. Remember that it all is about renewal and resurrection and those, whether you are religious and Christian or not, uh, may you have some love and time with your family and stay safe. We'll see you next week. Elliot, have a great weekend. You too, Simon. Simon.